Well, welcome once again. This is the podcast from First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy, and I am speaking to you uh, regarding the service that will be held on November 7th, 2021, which is significant because it is the 180th anniversary of the founding of First Baptist Church. I want you to know also that I've been struggling this week with a loss of my voice. So I'm attempting to go ahead and load this podcast up, and those of you who are listening will notice that my voice doesn't sound uh, completely normal. Uh, Hopefully it will be fine soon, but it has recovered enough for me to go ahead and try to get this recording out, so do bear that in mind. This is actually our... Uh, 87th pandemic worship uh, podcast. So thank you for being a faithful listener. And uh, to remind you that our website for our church is www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.weebly.com. The passage that I'm speaking from today comes out of the book of Revelation. From the 21st chapter, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had disappeared. Now there was no sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It was prepared like a bride for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne. It said, Now God's home is with people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, sadness, crying, or pain. All the old ways are gone. And the one who was sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. Then he said, Write this because these words are true and can be trusted. The one on the throne said to me, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give free water from the spring of the water of life to anyone who is thirsty. The passage you just heard is from the Revelation of John, or simply the Revelation is perhaps the most misunderstood book of all Christian scripture. Beginning with the name itself, frequently misreferred to as Revelations, the book has been the subject of horrendous interpretation that has not only distracted people from its true meaning, but has also served to separate Christian people into polarized positions and tightly defined camps based upon their literal leanings in interpretation. Other Christians, wishing no part of the fracas, avoid the revelation to John altogether. They are bewildered not only by the book, but also by the heartache it can cause between people who ought to regard one another with love and brotherhood. Thus, this book is often avoided in routine preaching by folks like me who genuinely desire peace and harmony to exist in a congregation. I think, however, that this is an unacceptable choice. 
After all, revelation is included in our scriptures. In the wisdom of the early fathers of the church, they recognized something of eternal value in this book for the community of believers in Jesus, known as his church. Therefore, it is necessary to try and speak on the matter of this book, the revelation to John, from time to time. And as we do, let's try and see what those early Christians saw and then learn more about the nature of our faith, a faith that looks to Jesus Christ as our example, Redeemer and Friend. There is so much that could be said about this final book of the Bible. I have even taught courses concerning its contents that have covered weeks and months. There are, though, some portions of the book that shine as the brightest stars in the crowded heavens. These are our guides and anchor us to the great truths of this ancient piece of apocalyptic literature. For instance, we are given the great promise in the third chapter, verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. I think that may have been the first verse I memorized from this book. Why? The answer is rather simple. I learned it so I could understand myself and communicate to others the heart of God toward his children. God is not out to destroy us with torture for our misdeeds. No, to the contrary. Jesus, who is speaking here, is patiently, persistently knocking on the doors of our hearts, hoping that we will invite him in to change our isolation into intimate fellowship with God. I think for some who have only been exposed to the fantastic and metaphorical visions of Revelation, this kind of loving God may come as something of a surprise. They are obsessively fascinated by the cataclysmic nightmare that follows. Yet, in doing this imaginative work, they usually miss the point. This book was written this unusual way to help the Christian believers of that time cope with the world around them that was seemingly falling apart. Persecutions, governmental and religious corruption, and natural disasters were not a prediction of some future they could not imagine, but a frightening portrait of the reality in which they lived. In the Revelator's style of storytelling called apocalyptic, some details and characters were veiled, that is, hidden behind symbolic images that the readers could understand, but others might find obscure. He did this so that he could stress to the faithful people suffering in that day the truth. The truth was this, God is in control. God is on their side. God will bring them through. God will win. This is the theme and promise of the revelation of John. It is also how the book concludes. Listen once again as I read the revelation in the Tree of Life version. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I also saw, heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is among men. He shall tabernacle among them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them and be their God. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Nor shall there be mourning or crying or pain any longer, for the former things have passed away. And the one seated upon the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Then he said, Write, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will freely give from the spring of the water of life. This Sunday, on the 7th of November, we're celebrating a birthday together. Today is the 180th anniversary of the founding of a Christian congregation at the confluence of the Dan and Mayo Rivers in the rolling hills of North Carolina. That group of people identified themselves in several ways. For instance, they believed they were valued in God's eyes. They believed they had applied faith that God not only loved them, but that they could choose to love him and others. <clears throat> because of this, they considered baptism as a demonstration of their faith, a declaration of individual choice to turn from the darkness that beleaguers all to embrace the light of God brought to us through Jesus Christ. For them, true religion was an open invitation offered by God, and not only for them, but for anyone who asked for forgiveness and restoration. Now, I know that may now seem like a pretty basic theology, but in 1841, in this part of the world, that was new, liberal, a radical idea. The founders of this church were subject to criticism by other Christians, including a majority of Baptists at that time. The dominant view of Baptists in this area focused on God's activity, and that left humanity without any choice. In other words, if you were elected, then you were saved. And if God so chose to not elect you, then you were damned. You could not choose God any more than a pet kitten could choose her owner. The very idea of human agency and salvation was considered heretical. Therefore, missionaries, evangelism, and even altar calls were discouraged. This kind of thinking was brought into question by some Christians, and some of those Christians were Baptist. Your spiritual forebears were among those Baptists. Of note here is that about 100 miles from here, in a little place called Sandy Creek, a new kind of Baptist work was taking place. These Baptists, called separate Baptists, believed that our call to evangelism by Jesus could be lively and deliberate. That church was begun by Shubal Stearns. Of him it is written, Stearns, a powerful and eloquent speaker found in North Carolina, a people almost destitute of religious privileges, but ready to listen to the earnest proclamation of the truth. In 1755, 
Stearns founded a Baptist church at Sandy Creek, and within 17 years, the church grew from 16 to 606 members. Undoubtedly, the influence of this church had an integral role in the founding of this church. Our historian and brother, Lloyd Baird, wrote recently about that beginning. He said it was on November 6th, back in 1841, that five folks met and organized a church which they named the Madison Baptist Church of Christ. Our first sanctuary was built 10 years later in 1850 to 1851 on Franklin Street. From 1851 to 1954, the name of the church was the Missionary Baptist Church of Madison. And in 1954, when our second sanctuary was built, the church was renamed the Madison First Baptist Church. As Lloyd reminds, this church has three names, three ways to understand who we are. We are Christ, we are missional, and we are distinctly Baptist. As an additional note, I think it is interesting to remember that the work begun by Schubel Stearns was not entirely alone. Her, his sister, Martha, also played a significant role. Baptist Women in Ministry tells us the whole truth. Separate Baptists allowed women to have a more prominent role in worship and in church leadership. Women served as deaconesses and eldresses in some separate Baptist churches, and women prayed and preached in their worship services. Martha became the best known of these women preachers. Historians have recorded that she often stood alongside her brother Shubal and spoke at many Baptist meetings. She also preached and assisted in her husband's churches. In 1810, Virginia Baptist historian Robert Simple wrote of Martha's contributions to Baptist work. Mr. Marshall had a rare felicity of finding in this lady a, a Priscilla, a helper in the gospel. In fact, it should not be concealed that his extraordinary success in the ministry is ascribable in no small degree to Mrs. Marshall's unwearied and zealous cooperation. Without the shadow of unusurped authority over the other sex, Mrs. Marshall, being a lady of good sense, singular piety, and surprising elocution, has in countless instances melted a whole concourse into tears by her prayers and exhortations. Baptist historian George Pascal, in his History of North Carolina Baptist, wrote of Daniel and Martha, As a result of the labors of this earnest and fervent evangelist, in which he doubtless had the assistance of his saintly and gifted wife, Miss Martha Stearns Marshall, great numbers turned to the Lord. What I want you to note is this. The missional drive and inclusion of women in the diaconate and pastorate of this church is not a Johnny-come-lately idea, but a conviction of Christian work deeply woven into the fabric of our understanding of Baptist ministry. The book of Revelation speaks to that. It seems to me more than fitting that this passage of Scripture written so long ago reminding those first believers that God was not only with them, but that in him they would find comfort and hope should be the selection for today. 
Careful followers of the lectionary will also note that this passage was chosen from the Selections for All Saints Day, an annual occurrence that closely aligns with the day we remember those who bravely pioneered a new way, a better way to express their faith in the risen Lord. Your church has been a well of living water in this community for 180 years. There are several ways I could tell that story, but let me focus on a few of the more important stars in the constellation of our history. I have just mentioned one of the brightest stars that guide us. That is the idea that God loves all people and is constantly inviting us to open the door and welcome him in. Our church was not established on the premise that we might only welcome the few, specially selected good folks, but that this is a welcome place for all God's children and that God is, as it says in the New Testament, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. We believe in and support the expansion of the gospel both here and abroad. And in so doing, this church helped found quite a few local churches, the biggest of which is the First Baptist Church of Greensboro. As Christ Church, we endeavor to follow our Savior's example. As any grouping of people, we are far from perfect, yet we hold on to our hope that in Jesus Christ, our sins, our blindnesses, our bigotries and hurtful ways will be overcome by the grace of God. This church has had moments when it shone forth in some remarkable ways. I have mentioned the establishment of new churches. In a day when the attention all seems focused on ever-crowded warehouse churches, we have been convinced that the spread of God's good news message is far more important than building a mega-ministry. Churches should be more like families. We are willing, able, and practiced at sharing ministry with our neighbors, be they Baptist or otherwise. What matters in the end is church health, not church size. I think we have also been a people willing to break social barriers for the sake of the gospel. After the Civil War, this church, through the vision of one of her deacons, began a school for children of slaves, when far too many believed that such an activity was not only useless, but against their understanding of the will of God. But thankfully, this church disagreed, and so a, church, uh, so a school to educate black children was established on the corner of Franklin and Decatur Streets. Then, during the racial and civil unrest of the early 70s, an African-American teen asked if she could join this church. This church set the example. This church welcomed her into our fellowship. It was not that long ago, as our town celebrated a bicentennial, that this church led the effort and joined with other churches, both black and white, to celebrate our love for Christ and each other. But what made that so special was the love feast of covered dishes brought from each church. We sat together and enjoyed a community meal as one Christian family. It was as if we declared a new day of love and devotion to our God and to each other as brothers and sisters. Most folks there rejoiced and thought it was something that was long overdue. In our understanding, this is what it means to follow Christ, to be missionary-minded and to be distinctively Baptist. In our understanding of what it means to be Baptist, we do not agree that ignorance is a virtue in the pulpit or Sunday school class. We have stood out on this conviction. 
In the 1940s, this church called its full first full-time pastor, my friend now gone to heaven, Willard Brown. Reverend Brown was the exception in this area. Reverend Brown was educated. Willard traveled on a buckboard from the farming community of Wilson to Wake Forest with just a few dollars in his pocket to get a college education. Upon graduation, he went on to the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. When he came here, one of the deacons of this church summarized the feelings of many when he said, it's about time we get an educated preacher. And this church has never looked back. This is not a matter of pride or haughtiness. This church and her members should never think themselves elite or superior. On the contrary, we value an educated clergy because we value God's word. The Bible really matters to us, and we want to know it as well as we can. Yes, that's a distinctive of this church, and one you should know and explain to any who ask. Today we're facing a new and challenging day. Some churches are giving up and shutting their doors. Others are so changing the message of Scripture to accommodate popular entertainment demands or become parlors of political alignments. They seem to have forgotten that the church is the home for all people. Even so, we are affected. We feel the stress. And we may, if we try, even imagine the way those first century Christians felt who read the Revelation to John. Is the end near? Have our best days already gone by? Will the pervasive evil of this world overwhelm the gospel message? The Revelation of John comforts us. The answer is still the same. Listen to it again. This time hear it as God's promise to us today. He who was seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. Then he said to me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the spring of the water of life to him who thirsts. Well then, let's get on with it. Let's enter boldly into our future with hope and promise and determination. We are called by God to a great future. Let us pray. O oh God, go with us into the future as you have led us in our past. Grant us division, give us courage, and encourage us in your love now and always. Amen.